Good morning, glad to be with you this morning to open up God's Word. We continue in our series in Exodus this morning. If you want to, you can begin to open up to Exodus 6. And I'll remind you as you do that, last week Chris opened up to us Exodus 5. We've been going chapter by chapter. And the end of Exodus 5 leaves us a little bit, a little bit at the edge of a cliff. There's no at the end of Exodus 5 where Moses, after God has given this promise and given, done all these things for Moses earlier in Exodus, and he calls Moses to go before Pharaoh. And what happens? Pharaoh brings hardship and trial into the life of the people of Israel. And they begin to grumble and complain. And we're left with this note at the end of Exodus 5. It says, And then Moses turned to the Lord and he said, Oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. And you have not delivered your people at all. And this morning as we come into Exodus 6, we begin to see what is God's response to this frustration that his people have with him. And it's amazing that in the response that God gives, we don't just get the message of his grace, but we actually get the grace of God demonstrated to them. Because God speaks a message of gentleness to people who have turned away from him. So with that in mind, let's look at Exodus 6. We'll just be reading the first 13 verses. I'll spare you the genealogy. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out. And with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and he said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. As God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold a slave, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from the slavery to them. I will deal with an outstretched arm with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land I swore to give Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel. They did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh the king of Egypt to let Israel go out of this land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How the shall Pharaoh listen to me? Proud, uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them, a cha- gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, the, the king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's pray.
Lord, how rich your word is. That when we open it, Lord, we find our hearts confronted and yet at the same time comforted. When we find challenges as we see the things that you call us to, and yet we find an abundance of grace that is poured out over and over. Lord, this morning as we hear your word, as we hear it taught, Lord, as I bring you the word, we pray that you would do that for us this morning. Lord, that you would encourage us as we see your promises, as we see your power and your strength to accomplish your will. Lord, help us to turn and to rest in who you are. Lord, for this isn't the inclination of our hearts. Lord, the measure of each day for us is how much we have accomplished. And Lord, what you would have us see as we open your word is that you are the one who accomplishes every good thing. Lord, so you gave your promises to your people. That we can rest in those. Lord, help us to rest this morning. Help us to be revived in the glorious plan that you're working out. Lord, for your glory and even for our good. We ask this in the name of Christ, our beautiful and wonderful mediator. Amen. My brother and his wife just took the kids to Disney World. I'm sure some of y'all are taking your kids to Disney World. I don't know what it's like, but from what I understand to children, it is like heaven. When they were telling them that they were going to do it, we were actually there. It was at Christmas time especially, and they were in Birmingham. Because my parents were actually doing it with them. And they gave them like a little card, you know, and they opened it up. They found out they were going to Disney World. And their excitement overflowed. And so much so that Camille, who was standing with them, was... Came up to mommy and daddy and was like, we're going to Disney World, we're going to Disney World. And to let's say a little bit, you know, to kind of talk her down from the edge, let her know that this is not, you know, we're not going to Disney World. But at the same time, we told her that we want to go to Disney World someday when we were going to go. And that was actually good enough for her. If you ask her today, are your parents going to take you to Disney World? She'll tell you, like, we're taking her tomorrow. I don't understand how she maintains that dichotomy in her head of not going tomorrow and yet still hoping in it. But it's something to do with, right? With, she knows how wonderful when she gets to go to Disney is going to be. And she knows, too, that when we tell her we're going to do something, that we will work to do that. Now, I was talking to a friend. I was telling him, actually, this. We were just talking about our children. This past week, one of his good friends was taking his kids to Disney. And the way that he told his children is, they, this was Thursday morning. They got their kids ready. They put all their, you know, they got their bags packed, their book bags packed. They got breakfast ready, and they got in the car like they were going to school. And on the way to school, instead of, they did the whole thing. They even drove past the school, from what I understand. Drove past the school, and at that moment told them that instead of going to school today, they were going to Disney. He had three little girls. Two girls were overwhelmed with excitement. And the third girl, which was the middle girl, I think she was about eight years old, was overwhelmed with anger and frustration. She had a project that she wanted to turn in. She had a test she was wanting to take. She didn't understand that when her parents said that they were going to take her to Disney World, that all those things weren't going to matter to her. She didn't understand how fun it was going to be. She had apparently not watched enough television, because if you watch any children's television, every other commercial, right, is Disney. 
And it tells you about how you can make your child's wonderful, most wonderful dreams come true. And somehow she was holding on to the present reality. She couldn't see what was ahead. You know, as we open up this passage, we see that that's not just a symptom for a little girl, is it? That's a symptom of our hearts, that when we have promises ahead, they are so hard for us to grasp onto. When God spoke to Israel, he gave them a promise. The only thing they could see was the immediate circumstances around them. And as Chris talked about last week, it just leads to frustration. They say, God, we don't want your plan to be accomplished. We'd rather just have the difficult life, but predictable life that we have here in Egypt as slaves. Now, can you imagine saying this? People saying it on behalf of their children. We're people who live in bondage. We're people who live in slavery. God, if it's going to take a lot more trials for us to find freedom, I'm not sure if I'm ready to get there. I'm not sure if I'm ready to get there, but that's what they're saying. It's utter foolishness. And Exodus 6 really points us to that as God reveals how beautiful His promise is, how beautiful He, wa- how beautiful he wants to make their lives. And we begin to see that this is kind of the condition of hearts, that we're sitting in the backseat crying because the thing that we're expecting today is not coming about. But the beauty of God's plan, this is where we see grace upon grace poured out by God, is that in our frustration, in our fear, in our anger, in the frustration and fear of the anger of Israel, God doesn't turn that car around, does he? He doesn't say, okay, you know, I was going to do the Lord be great, but since you say school would be great, I'll take you back there. No, God doesn't do that. He, be, he knows the goodness of his promise, and he begins to move his people towards that. Whether they like it or not, and the grace of God is poured out again and again. It's the repetition of not just the Old Testament. Sometimes we look at the Old Testament and we say, God's people failed and God had grace, right? God restores them. No, it's been, the, it's, it's been the repetition of the life of the people of God, even today, that we come before God, not because we finally work ourselves there, but that God continues to relate to us by the promise and the goodness of His grace. And yet we still doubt. And that's the issue. We doubt. We doubt the goodnesses of the promise of God. And God addresses our hearts with that this morning. The first thing he says to the people of Israel is actually spoken directly to Moses. In verse 1, look at it. He speaks a promise to Moses in order to dispel their doubts. He says, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. Now I have to confess, when I was actually planning my sermon, my original notes, this is really bad, this is bad interpretation, something I did not learn in some day. I wrote down, okay, God's going to deliver them with his strong hand, with his strength, and with his hand. But if you look back at it, <laughs> it took me a little bit, because some reason I just totally missed this. Look at what he says. He actually says, for with a strong hand, he, who's he? Pharaoh will deliver them out. Pharaoh is going to deliver the people of God with a strong hand. And the first feature of God's promise is that he says, I'm going to take the thing that is beating me down, the thing that is over your entire life, I'm going to use that very thing to bring deliverance for you. It's craziness. It's crazy. How are you going to do this, God? You can imagine them. You can imagine Moses. Hey, you're going to use Pharaoh? Did you just see what he did? He took a straw away. Pharaoh's really bad. 
continues failing to do this? And we're going to see that the plan and the mission of God is not simply to deliver God's people, but it's to show them more and more of who he is. Because what he's revealing when he begins to say that, I'll do this by the hand of Moses, uh, by the hand of Pharaoh, and then he says, you know Pharaoh, that guy who thinks that he's an instrument of the gods? He's only an instrument of my hand. Every power, every ability, everything that he does is only in my permission. And when God gives them this promise, he is telling them that, that whatever you see Pharaoh doing is in my will. So that when they're sent out, when you're sent out, it is done by my plan, by my working. But it's not just that they're sent out. Look how look at the force of what it ha- and how it happens. He doesn't say that it'll force Pharaoh's hand. He says he'll force it with a strong hand. He will send them out. It doesn't say that just that, but it says they'll be driven out. Pharaoh is going to want the people of God to go. Pharaoh is going to want them to go. You don't drop something out unless you want it to leave, right? You may not, you may not be happy about your mice in your house. You may be trying to kill them. But when you want them out, you drive them out, right? I don't know how to do that. We've had mice. But that's how God works. Because again, he's reminding them that the power that Pharaoh has, the power that's at work for them, is the power of God. And it's one of these beautiful features of God's deliverance. That he uses an evil and hardened heart of Pharaoh to deliver those people. Imagine the way that Israel might have planned their exile. If we were in Israel, what would we have done in the Exodus? We begin to rally the troops, right? We begin to stage protests. We have Facebook. You know, we've seen all these things going on in the news. We would get together and we say, okay, we need to start protesting. And usually that escalates at some point to some form of violence because this wasn't, this isn't today where there's a lot of outside scrutiny looking in on countries. There wasn't scrutiny. The expectation was that if there's protests, there's going to be violence. So you would have gathered your sword. You would have gathered your strong men. And guess what? A lot of people would have died. I, had, I, I, I tried to work through all of the access, but it's amazing to see that in God's plan, He preserves every single life of the people of Israel. We could never imagine the plan so gracious. You may find one or two. I, I, I confess I didn't read everything in Exodus, but I didn't see anything where a bunch of people die. God preserves His people by His plan. But they have to endure. They have to endure. And so he tells them not just his promise, but he begins to remind them that when I make a promise, I continue my work. That's the same thing you see, is that God reminds his people, and again, he speaks this part to Moses. And he says, I will remember my covenant with you. The hard thing is is that uh, the immediate circumstances of Israel, they're pretty bad. They're pretty horrific, in fact. They're in slavery. They're in bondage. They're being told that they can't do work with any... They're not just being asked to work. But they're made, the work is actually made harder. That's what Chris was talking about last week. When they take the straw out, it means the work is harder to do than it was before. And these present circumstances keep them from being able to see the promise of God. Pete Hens, who uh, is a commentator on this, he talks about how Moses then relates to it. When he sees the circumstances of Israel and those things come to him, he says this, he says, Moses' focus is now on disastrous outcome of his first encounter with Pharaoh, not on the character of God who has called him. In fact, 
the most vital lesson in Mount Horeb, that's where Moses went to the mountain, that is that I will be with you, has not yet sunk in. He hasn't yet learned that there's more at stake than just how he is doing. It's so hard for us to remember that God has already done things in the past. He's done things for the church. He's done things for the people of Israel. And those things are the things that we stand upon. The solution that we want from God, I was just thinking about this, is what has happened for me this week with my allergies. I have allergies, and this week, I think they just started cranking up. And I think maybe actually a couple weeks before, because I've just been you know, a, little, a little tired than normal. And on Wednesday, finally, I was like, I can start taking Zyrtec, start taking the Zyrtec for the spring. And it's remarkable. Just in those few days, I've had not just the allergy kind of symptoms clean up, but I felt more energy because, you know, allergies, I don't know exactly how it works. Apparently, they kind of bring your body down. And that's what we want from God. We want an allergy pill that treats our symptoms and makes us be able to sustain life with some degree of energy. Right? But when God says that my plan is to redeem you, he's talking about something totally different. We put it in the context of allergies. He's saying, I'm going to heal you with your allergies. And if you know anything about medicine, you know that allergies aren't something that you heal. The only way to heal allergies is to have a new body. To have a resurrection body. And that's actually what God is telling him. He says, this is what you want. You want the, the comfort of your immediate circumstances. But what I want from you is, is complete glory. I want to be with you. And I want to show you that I will fill you like no other thing will. And so he reminds them of his promise and how that was good for Abraham. And it was good for Isaac. And it was good for Jacob. But he says, not only that, I gave them these promises and I began to work in them. And they were able to hold on to these things. But I've given you more. But he says, they call me by God Almighty, but they have not called me by the Lord Moses' experience in Mount Horeb was where God revealed to him that he is the Lord. Which is, if you'll remember, what that means is that God is with his people, essentially. We don't keep looking to these promises of being in the promised land as if the land itself was the fulfillment of God's promises. When the presence of God is the promise that they're supposed to be looking for altogether. God is already fulfilling his promise to Israel in being with them and revealing himself as the Lord. I've heard their groanings, he said. The people of Israel and the Egyptian hold as slaves. And I have remembered, I have remembered my covenant. I can, I can illustrate so many things from my life. It's kind of sad. But uh, about three days out of the week, on the way home from whatever I'm doing, different errands, or from our church, uh, Leslie, will, Leslie will call me and ask me if I can pick something up sometime during the day. And, I'm always happy to do it, except for that I have the worst short-term memory in the world. I'll go to the grocery store and have a list of three things when I get out of the car that I need to get. And if I'm not written them down, there's no way I'm coming out with more than two. I mean, it's impossible. Even if I like the things, even if I'm excited about it. And so it kills me. So I've asked Leslie to actually send me text messages to write these things down to remind me. And it's helped. And so now, like, instead of, like, only remembering to go by the store one day a week. I'm up to about two now, so I'm still working on it. But when we think about what it means to remember things, we actually bring all this context in on God. That when God says he will, that, that he remembers his covenant, 
we kind of leave it with kind of our tan glasses on. But we don't understand that when God talks about remembering, it's kind of like knowing. Quite a lot of y'all heard the, that when, it's, when God says that he knows us, it doesn't just mean that he has like some fleshy knowledge. It means that he knows us. He knows the inner parts of our being. He knows what makes us up. You know, you talk about our spouses. That it's not just one thing to know your spouse. It's another thing to know your spouse. It's the same thing with God's remembering, this whole kind of cognitive work. That when God remembers, he's not saying that, oh, for the years y'all been in, y'all been in Egypt. I forgot. He's saying, I've always remembered. By the way, it should be, the way that verse should be read, look at verse 5, it says, I have remembered my covenant. Meaning, he's saying, y'all have forgotten. You don't, you, don't, you don't remember that I made a promise to you. But guess what? I've been remembering it. I've been keeping it up. I've been staying my promise with you. And you have right now these evidences of that promise. You see, our memory is so fickle. It's so hard to hold on to those things. But the beauty of God's work is that He remembers for us. This morning, He is remembering who you are. He knows your heart. He knows who you are. He knows your inner being. And He remembers His promise of love that's even further worked out in Christ for you. And the question is, do we begin to hold on to that? Do we begin to remember that God remembers us? That's how this comforts our heart, isn't it? God is showing Israel who he is. And he's saying, look who I am. That's, what, that's all he's trying to say. Look at what I've done. Look at my faithfulness. He's trying to tell them, remember. I remembered. Remember me. Remember me. It's hard for the people of Israel. It's hard for us. But God's work continues. After speaking to Moses, he finally gives him. He says, okay, now this is now your new commission to the people of Israel. These are the things that I want you to say to him. In verse 6, verse six through 8, that's actually what he tells them. He tells them this is what you're supposed to say. Let's read that again. Notice just the way that God's words come across. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the bones of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you and house your with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land I swore to give Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for possession. I am the Lord. Speaks to him directly. He says, okay, this plan, just in case you're not clear on it, I'm the one who's going to accomplish it. Look at it. I just like how it says. It's, it says it almost in the future, but you get this sense that it's, it's almost already happening, the way that God says it with such authority and such repetition. I will bring you out. I will deliver you. I will do you. I will take you to be my people. And I will be your God. So the message is clear to Israel. God is the one who brings our redemption. At best, our attempts at bringing redemption to our lives, at bringing healing to our lives, they're attempts, right? They're try, that we try, and we hope. We may do something and hope that a relationship is restored, but we have no guarantee of those things. 
But God's word stands so starkly against our attempts and our, tri- our, tri- our trying. When God speaks, is an assured thing. And so when he says to Israel, I will do these things, he's giving them the context and the hope of their promise. See, God has a plan for his people. And not only that, he's not ignorant of their trials. Like he says, from under the burdens of the Egyptians, he knows what's going on. Even in verse 5, leading up to that, I know that the Egyptians hold them as slaves. But God doesn't just plan to redeem them. Look, at the, the other feature of God's redemption, he doesn't just plan to bring them out of Egypt. Again, this is the feature of God's promise that they need most and that we need most. Look what he says. He says, I will not just redeem you. He said, I will take you to be my people. I'll be your God. God's redemption is full. It's complete. God doesn't just do half of redemption. He doesn't just fly, you know, we go back to that original analogy. He's not just flying to the airport to Orlando and then flying home. He takes it fully. He com- he's completing it. And what he's telling Israel is that I am the one who can do the redemptive work for you. You know, we know this in our heads sometimes, don't we? If you're raised in church, you know that God is the one who's supposed to redeem us, right? But the, the trouble of doubt is that it takes those things and begins to distort them, begins to twist in our head. And what we try to do is we may know that God has a secure forgiveness for us. We know that this is part of his promise, that God has redeemed us to himself and bringing these things. And yet we try so often to do what? We try. We try to cleanse our conscience. We try to live a better life so we can get closer to God. What we're really saying is that, God, your promise isn't good enough for me. What you did did with Christ on the cross, that was awesome. But it's not good enough. Yeah, and that's the problem. We don't think God's promise is good enough. We have a limited view of it. Israel, all they could see is that God was confronting Pharaoh. That's all they could see. They couldn't see and hope in the things that are that are being done, and his being close to them, and his bringing them out of their slavery. So God says, nope, I alone bring salvation. No one takes away from it. No one adds to it. Thus he begins that section, the prophecy that he gives to Moses. I am the Lord. And he ends up saying, why, I am the Lord. He says, Israel, I am with you. You know me. I know you. I am the Lord. Present reality dictates the way that we understand God, doesn't it? Whatever is presently going on tells us what we are to believe about God. You know, one of, the, one of the big movements, and I think this is something that I, I went through a couple times, I remember when I was in high school, one of the big movements in the church was this curriculum, Experiencing God, which was a great curriculum about talking about who God is and talking about what it means to be part of God's people. But what's happened, I think, not this is a, uh, as a result of the curriculum, but what's happened is that the language experience God has become to mean something else in the way that I think is really, really intended. That it's become, but we need to figure it out and we need to have experiences 
of God. And so we were working a lot trying to figure out how do we experience God? How do we have excitement? And we go to retreats and we get, we get out and we experience God and then we come home and we're, we say, I'm not experiencing God right now. And we have this horrible context for understanding what the experience of God is. You may go to a retreat and experience God. Don't get me wrong. That's actually a good thing. But when you come home is when the trial is because the experience of God is not simply to be on a high. It's not simply to have excitement. It's not simply to go a day without sinning. To experience God is to know God. And that's why God is revealing who He is. He's revealing what He's going to do. Because to experience God is to know Him. And to know God is to experience God. Verse 9 says that because of their broken spirits and the harsh slavery, they don't listen to Moses. A lot of shields we put over our ears, right? A lot of things that keep us from being able to know, to listen, to hear who God is. And what God's trying to do is pull those things back. He's trying to lift your earmuffs and say, this is who I am. That repetition that we talk about, that gospel repetition of how God relates to his people. It's kind of... I love you. You know, and we, we go, ah, no, I'll listen to my music. And yet God keeps coming into his people's lives and saying, I love you. I'll redeem you. I've given you Jesus. And we hear that we have the love of Jesus. And we put it back on. If you want to know how not to experience God, it's to take anything in your life and begin to use it as these earmuffs to live by. Anything other than Christ, anything other than the love of God, and to muscle out what God is intending to do for us. And stands Israel and stop listening to God. And we get to the end of this passage, and it's tempting to look at it as if there's no hope again. We got to the end of last week, and there was no hope. We get to the end of this week, and the question is so we just left again? They doubted? Again, the Lord said to Moses, Go in and tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel are not listening to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, the king of Egypt to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Let's start closing this point. The last thing we see about God's work, God's promise, is what we've already seen, that God's the one who not just is going to do it, but he's the one who's going to begin it. God sends uh, Moses whether Moses understands it's going to work or not, he sends him out. He gives him a commission. He gives it to him over and over. He says, y'all may, not, y'all may be ambivalent. You may be scared. You may be fearful. But go to Pharaoh. They're not ready for the redemption. I don't know if y'all notice, but I did this intentionally, obviously, but the beginning of every point of the outline is that uh, the, the point of 
intention at every point of the outline is that God is working. There's no action of man in the redemption of Israel. There's only trusting in the one who's going to accomplish it. Moses questioned to God, but I'm of uncircumcised lips. This is a, I think this is the third time that he says this back to God. The first time on the mountain, another time when he actually goes through uh, some, of, some of his other preparation. And this third time he says, I am of uncircumcised lips. And what the, the thing is that Moses thinks that the plan of God is only going to happen if he can say it right. And what God saying is, no, actually I kind of picked you for that reason. Your poor speech... You're scared, and you're, you're a fearful person. And I don't want you to do my will. Lest anyone ever think that it is the work of a man. Moses is afraid. And yet God begins to show him how his plan is going to work. He brings him back to the hope of his will. This happens with Israel, too. Why are they discouraged? Because they keep trying to stop listening to God. And all God is asking them to do is to listen and to wait. It really isn't that hard of a thing. They're in, they're in slavery already. There are already these things going on. They don't have to do a lot. They just have to wait. And what he's trying to tell them to do is, I don't want, just want you to wait. I want you to wait and hope. Because I would do these things. It's one of the paradoxes of our lives that God's maybe calling us to wait. He may be saying that I've done a great work, but the full redemption is not here yet, is it? And he's telling us to wait. But as you wait, I want you to do it with hope. I want you to rest on the promise of Christ. I want you to rest on the promise of what I've done for my people for thousands and thousands of years. Now, yeah, you see Pharaoh, too. He's one of the other people in this passage. But he's... Obstinate, isn't he? To say the least. This is only the beginning. This is only the second time Pharaoh has denied God. And it's because Pharaoh thinks that for some reason, whatever he does is by his own power and by his own will. He thinks that if he turns God down, if he turns the people of God down, then God's plan will never be accomplished. He knows that his people, they've done a good job of slavery. Their people can't, they can't just rise up. They've oppressed them enough so that the people feel hopeless. They feel beat down. And he says, no, I don't have to let you out. You're building my temples. You're building my uh, buildings. This is great. Why would I ever do those things? He has no context for the fear and the knowledge of God. And so he begins to reject him and say, I'll live it by my own way. It's not going to be long to see that the power of God manifests in the life of Pharaoh against Pharaoh himself. What God does in this passage is that he really speaks gently to his people. These are strong words, don't get me wrong. But if you imagine that God's people come back to him after he's promised this great work, after he's done these great things of revealing himself, of being near to people who don't have any merit in themselves to have God. God's very gentle here, isn't he? Because he's just bringing them back to who he is and reassuring them the thing that he's doing. There are two responses that I think we can have that would be unbiblical. 
when we see the overwhelming need, the overwhelming, you know, goals of our lives, whatever they may be, there are two things that we ended up being guided by a lot of time. One is pride, this desire and this uh, hope that we can accomplish these things by ourselves, that we have power within us to do whatever, whatever it is necessary to make our lives fulfilled. And the other thing is apathy. The other side of it is apathy. And we see the promise of God, we see these things, and we just say, I don't know. I don't know where to get there, God. I don't know if we can make it. Or look at God in general and say, I, I don't know, it really matters. Maybe when I come to some point in crisis, I'll wait till then. I'll wait till then to trust God. I'll wait till then to examine His promises, to examine who God is. But God comes in with such gentleness and such grace. See, the gospel is repeated over and over, even in this time with that, even in this time with Israel. Thus we think the gospel is just New Testament good news. God was always full of grace. He was always relating to them in the context of who? Of his son. He was always relating to them, knowing that them works did not merit his love, but that the works of Christ were being worked out on their behalf, even then. And that's where the promises of God, even for Israel then, they were already true effectively. And they're true for us this morning when we hear the promises of God. That God loves you. It's true already. That redemption is being worked out. It's true already. Chris mentioned that uh, we went to a conference on uh, pornography at Oak Mountain. That was a very good conference. And it was talking about just the power of addiction, not just porn, but addiction in general, and how there's this power of shame that beats us down because we think that we're never going to make it. We think that we're never going to make it out of whatever our addiction is, whatever our plaguing sin is. And we're beat down by shame. One of the things I kept thinking, there were, a couple, there were two couples who had been through some serious trials, affairs and everything, and they're sitting out there and they're loving each other. <laughs> It didn't compute. I said, how can their wives, how can their wives love? And I was ready to, you know, show the grace. I wasn't hurt by their sin, specifically. I was ready to try to show them this, but I was like, how can their spouses do this? How can they relate to them in this way? And the thing they kept coming back to, the thing that they kept coming back to, was an understanding of who they were before Christ, who they were before God. It blew my mind. I like the grace of the gospel, but I wasn't sure I liked it that much. It is so much freer and so much better. God continues to come after us, continues to pursue us. And he continues to overcome our doubt by showing his faithfulness. Now this morning, that's what God wants us to hear. He wants us to hear about his covenant love. When we do the Exodus... What we see is this God who comes after his people. It's not cliche to say that he's coming after you. If you don't believe it, look at the Lord of Christ. You see this plan has been worked out. God gave his son to come after his people. God's going to go to every single extent to call his people to himself. And all there is to do is to remember, to rest. And the doubts and the trials... 
They won't simply, they won't go away immediately. They'll begin to be quelled. You'll begin to find rest even in the midst of doubt. As you find your Savior being Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we rejoice that you bring such a wonderful and all-encompassing solution to our pain and frustration and sin. Lord, we even rejoice on behalf of Israel, Lord, who you gave grace to, or who you loved and who you drew and went to. When we seek this morning that you remind our hearts Lord, that we now bear your name, that we have been grafted into your tree. Lord, that our head is Jesus Christ, the one who has come before you, making all things possible. Lord, come to our hearts with this gospel, with this hope. And it's in your name we ask these things. Amen.